We've arrived today to the midpoint in the book of Acts, as far as number of words. We're halfway through, Um, and I'm sure you, like myself, have loved becoming acquainted with the early church um, and have been encouraged to see the grace of God on display as he multiplies church members. And I think for me personally, one of the things I have been most struck by as I read through Acts and have studied through it um, is the knowledge that the people that we're reading about here are our heritage and we are their legacy, in a sense. They may have lived 2,000 years prior to us and lived lives that are different than our own, but we have that common love of Christ Jesus. Uh, And then because of that, we have these shared gospel distinctives in our lives. Um, So when I read these stories, um, it's like we're reading kind of our family history in a way, so that's special. Um, But even more than that, it's the knowledge that it was the same Father, Son, and Spirit at work in these believers that is at work in our lives today. We're going to be looking today at Acts 15 and covering verses 1 through 35. There is a little bit more to Acts 15, and you're going to get to cover that in your group time, so I'm not going to spoil uh, that in the lecture. Usually what we have today is called the Jerusalem Council, and it's a significant meeting that took place about 15 years or more after the church uh, was born in Jerusalem, and it's very significant to church history. Uh, Pastor John calls the Jerusalem Council the most significant of all church councils because of how it affirms the gospel message and how it resists the pressure to impose Jewish legalism uh, on the Gentile believers. And in his words, the apostles here affirmed for all time the truth that salvation is holy by God's grace through faith alone, apart from any human efforts. And I've divided it Uh, for us into three sections that we'll look at in just a moment. Uh, But before we get there, I think it's important that we kind of set the stage uh, by presenting who the key figures are at this meeting. And this is very exciting. Uh, You know, maybe you've had this experience before. If you're at a party or, you know, some event, there's an icebreaker and they ask if you could visit any historical event in history, uh, which, which would you choose to see? And I think that this right here, the Jerusalem Council, is actually one of my top contenders uh, because of who's involved, because of the significance of what they're discussing. Um, and there's just this, this drama, the apostolic authority that's here present together is just very exciting to be a part of and to uh, behold. So where are we now in the book of Acts? We have seen the gospel going forth from Jerusalem, where it began, and then to the region of Judea and Samaria, and then we've been just recently seeing it go through the rest of the Roman Empire. In chapter 15, Paul and Barnabas have just finished the first missionary journey, which Anne taught us about last week, and they're back in Syrian Antioch, and they're giving this report of all the amazing things that the Lord had done in saving Gentiles. And I kind of view Acts 15 as a bit of a pause on the geographic movement that we've seen and that we're going to continue to see in chapter 16. And it's at this time that Gentiles have been saved and they're growing in the church that this serious matter of the Gentile incorporation into the people of God needs to be addressed at length by the apostles. The council takes place in approximately AD 49 
And it's important, again, not only because of the issues that are being addressed here, but because of the authority of the men involved in this meeting. So who are these key figures in the council? By Paul's own words in Galatians 2.9, the men involved here, and specifically James and Peter, are pillars of the church. So therefore, what they discuss uh, and what they say is going to be quite significant in the church and in setting the trajectory of the church and how it unites Jews and Gentiles um, and also how it responds to error. So first we have Paul and with him Barnabas. And we know a lot about Paul. Um, We've seen over the past few months a lot of biographical information about him, including his Roman citizenship and his devoutly Jewish upbringing and practice. And we saw in chapter 9 how the Lord interrupted the plans of Paul and changed him from being a hater of Christ and of the church to a follower of Christ and a faithful uh, gospel evangelist. Barnabas has been with Paul in ministry and was instrumental in Paul's early years as a believer in building him up and seeing him along in his growth. And Paul is a hero, I think, to so many of us uh, because we see in Acts his faithful life spent in declaring salvation in the name of Jesus to those who have not known and also of this ministry of edification to the believers in the church. And so also we get to see Paul through his epistles in the rest of the New Testament and we see his heart for uh, the people of God. Uh, We're encouraged in the New Testament and we're strengthened through these spirit-breathed words of Paul as we read in the epistles. And then from Paul's letters and also from church tradition, we can surmise that Paul was released from Rome at the end of his first imprisonment at the end of Acts to do further ministry in Colossae and Ephesus and Crete and probably Spain before being arrested and then brought back to Rome where he would be martyred under Nero's persecution sometime after AD 64. And then we have Peter, and we love Peter. We're familiar with him because he is depicted in the gospel accounts as one of the most vocal of the 12 disciples, and he's really the leader and the spokesman for that group. And we relate to Peter, uh, don't we? Because while his passion and his boldness for Christ are often depicted, so are his many failures. And we, or um, some of us, can relate to Peter's weaknesses. Uh, So we cherish seeing how Jesus restores him and then equips him for future ministry. Tradition holds that Peter was arrested in Rome under Nero's reign, uh, where he also suffered martyrdom, probably around the same time as Paul. And lastly, we have James. And James appears to have the most um, localized ministry, anchoring his pastoral ministry in the Church of Jerusalem, as we see here in Acts 15 and also Galatians 2. And while James was one of the brothers of Jesus, he did not initially believe in him. He came to faith in Jesus as the Christ, um, and in fact, even saw the resurrected Christ. We get that from 1 Corinthians 15, 7. Peter points to James' high authoritative position back in Acts 12, 17, when he tells the church to report these things to James and to the brethren. And James is portrayed as a central leader in the Jerusalem church. He wrote the book of James, uh, which is actually the earliest New Testament book to have been written and was written before the council took place. Church history from Josephus indicates that James was killed by an angry mob of Jews in AD 62. And I'd imagine if we were alive back in the first century, we would probably view James as actually the more prominent of the church leaders because of his pastoral leadership in the Jerusalem church. 
Um, so the intriguing thing for us here is that although Peter and James and Paul did interact with each other and were aware of one another's activities, um, they appear physically together in only great detail in this one instance, and that's the Jerusalem Council. Uh, this highlights, again, the significance of the event we're going to look at when you come to it. Uh, knowing what we do about Paul and Peter and James, and there's a host of other church leaders here as well, you can just sense kind of this magnitude um, of this gathering of foundational church leaders to discuss the matter of the Gentile incorporation into God's family. So the first five verses of Acts 15, we get to see the problem or the issue emerge in this first section, which I've titled The Gospel Assaulted. And if you haven't already turned to Acts 15, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 5. Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. Therefore, being sent on their way by the church, they were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and were bringing great joy to all the brethren. When they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. So after returning from that first missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas are back in Antioch, which I consider kind of their sending church, reporting what God had done in saving the Gentiles. And though that sounds so lovely, and it is, um, it becomes quickly marred by these men from Judea in verse 1. These men, for a reason that's not disclosed, came to Antioch from Jerusalem, which we see because it's later noted in the chapter, and they declare that Gentiles must be circumcised in order to be saved. And this group is most likely what's known as Judaizers, and they're those Jews who infiltrate into the church claiming allegiance to Christ, but who advocate a false gospel because they add circumcision um, and the Mosaic law as necessary for salvation. Um, but what these Jews failed to understand is that circumcision or any works for that matter never saved anyone. And Paul's going to teach this later on in Romans 4 when he points to the fact that Abraham back in Genesis 15:6, was counted as righteous before he had been circumcised. Uh, so this group doesn't understand justification through faith alone. And this is no minor error to change the gospel message in any way is to oppose God himself and to deny the sufficiency of the work of Christ. And you'll remember uh, that in Galatians 1, Paul says that if anyone should preach a different gospel than that which had been taught since the beginning, that person is to be accursed. So then it's no surprise um, in verse 2 when we read that Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them. When the truth of the work of Christ and the souls of men are at stake, that is reason to be aggressive in attacking falsehood and defending the truth. The magnitude of this assault against the gospel is so great that then the brethren in Antioch realize that it needs to be taken to the church in Jerusalem so that the church would have this united and accurate response to this heresy. The issue is too significant for uh, any local congregation to handle on its own, thus it's taken back to where the church had began in Jerusalem, to be addressed by the apostles and the elders. 
Um, As Paul and Barnabas head back to Jerusalem, they take advantage of that opportunity by declaring to the believers along the way what God had been doing in saving Gentiles. And this brings great joy to the believers to hear that many are being added to the church. And when I was thinking through this, I just imagined that um, they would have been thinking of God's promise to Abraham that through him, all the families of the world would be blessed. These small communities of believers are getting to see that promise start to unfold, and they're excited and how privileged they must have felt to be living in the era in which God is saving in large numbers people from among the nations. Once they arrive in Jerusalem, Paul and his companions give that same positive report of what God had done. And we're told in verse 5 that some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up saying it is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. And I think here we need to clarify a couple things. First, we should ask, how are these Jews and the claim of verse 5 connected to the Jews and the claim of verse 1? They seem um, distinct, but they're certainly related. And I think this is where we actually can really see how disruptive that heresy that the Judaizers were were spreading um, was causing so much confusion regarding the basis on which Gentiles were to be incorporated into the people of God. So it appears that the teaching of the Judaizers had impacted some Jews and their understanding of what's required for full inclusion into the church. Um, although the text in verse 5 makes it clear that these Jews are Christians because it says that they had believed, right? And that word here indicates both, both past belief as well as continued belief. Um, so what they seem to be saying is that if Gentiles are truly to be part of God's people, they must become Jews in their practices. So I don't think... Um, they're saying that circumcision and keeping the law saves you, but rather they're saying that if you are saved by faith, you will then adhere to um, these requirements. So they're advocating that saved Gentiles must then act like Jews in their practices. Um, The second thing that I think we need to note in verse 5 is that it would be incorrect for us to think of the Pharisees as the bad guys of church history. Um, And I know why we think that, Right? It's because the gospel accounts portray the Pharisees interacting with Jesus and rejecting him and seeking to kill him. And we can think of them kind of as these antagonists to the gospel. And while certainly that's true of many of them, um, this text helps us see that there are at least some Pharisees who came to faith in Christ, um, just as Paul himself, a Pharisee, had come to faith in Jesus as Lord. These Jews were devoted to the word of God. Um, So we have to recognize that I think at some level, there is a a logical consistency with their view that those who have faith in the Messiah of Israel must in turn exercise um, adherence to the law of Moses because Israel had been commanded to obey it, and in so doing, they would experience the blessings of the covenant. So therefore, the question that the apostles and the elders, um, this council needs to address Um, is not if the Gentiles should be incorporated into the church, but rather on what basis they are to be included and then what's to be their relationship with the Mosaic law. Um, So now we're going to look at how that's addressed in our next section, which is titled The Gospel Affirmed. And I'm going to read all of 6 through 18. The apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, You know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. 
and he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke, which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. All the people kept silent, and they were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they had stopped speaking, James answered, saying, Brethren, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. With this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After these things I will return, and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known from long ago. And I did use the word affirmed intentionally because I think we need to be clear that what these men proclaim in these verses is not new to the church. The gospel message is what Jesus and his disciples had taught and what the church, again, over 15 years old by this point, had been proclaiming since it was born. It's a gospel of repentance from sin to faith in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. And I think it'd be appropriate here to look at some of those declarations that we've already seen in the book of Acts. Um, so I have four for us. In Acts 2.38, Peter, while he's evangelizing, declares, repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then later in Acts 4, verses 10 through 12, Peter, explaining how a layman had been made well, declares by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. How about Acts 5, verses 30 through 31? Peter and the apostles declare, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And then lastly, in Acts 10, 42 through 43, Peter states that he was ordered by God to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and of the dead. Of him, all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. So those are just a few of the consistent gospel declarations that teach repentance from sin and faith in Jesus as the Messiah who died for the iniquities of man and was resurrected by God. And it is through faith in his name that we are forgiven. Back now to chapter 15. In verses 7 through 11, Peter reminds them of how God had called him to share the gospel with Gentiles, namely Cornelius, we saw that, um, and that they believed. Further, Peter testifies to the fact that these Gentiles received the Spirit, and I think the implied question there is, would God have given the Spirit to Gentiles if he had not accepted them on the basis of faith alone? No, God's giving of the Spirit is, Peter argues, an evidence that he shows no partiality and that he's accepted the Gentiles into his family on the basis of faith. The suggestion that the law was in some way necessary for salvation 
or for acceptance into the people of God is defeated by the fact that even the Jews themselves were unable to keep the law. And verse 11 gives us the bottom line of Peter's argument. But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. Works of the law, circumcision, and any other good deed contribute nothing to salvation. It's the grace of Jesus alone that saves you from the wrath of God. This is the message of the church, um, one that's been declared and defended since the beginning. And I'm sure a lot of you are very familiar. Perhaps there are people even from within your own families who would claim that they may reach heaven or be accepted by God um, apart from the grace of Jesus. And it can take many forms. Um, Maybe it is a flat-out denial that Jesus is the sinless Son of God, that he died on the cross for the sins of man and rose again on the third day. But maybe it's more subtle, like what the Judaizers were saying. Um, Maybe they affirm faith, but then they add works to that. Um, But that's not the gospel. Peter's simple statement, we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, is the unfailing gospel message. Believers know that we have nothing to merit salvation. We have done nothing to merit salvation. And we're united in that, right? And we point to Christ as the all-sufficient Savior, just as Jesus himself said in John 14, that he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. And that is the truth that's always worthy of our praise. After these words, Paul and Barnabas bolster Peter's testimony in verse 12 by adding their own firsthand report of the signs and wonders which God had done through them among the Gentiles. And that's why I say I love this scene because it has so much drama, right? It's not just that we see uh, the truth being really um, aggressively taught, which I love, um, but we also see these eyewitnesses' account of the power of God on display. In verse 13, we see James, who does certainly come across as fairly commanding, the leader of the Jerusalem church, when he says, brethren, listen to me. And then James, supporting what Peter or Simeon has already spoken, declares that, in fact, the prophets themselves agree with what is taking place among the Gentiles. And James quotes from Amos 9, 11 through 12, also drawing from Isaiah, to show that God had previously declared that he would call Gentiles to himself even in the context of God's promise of restoring the kingdom of David. So even though we know that God will keep the covenant with David, uh, that does not preclude his bringing Gentiles into his kingdom. So he's going to do both. Um, But what I love here is when you look a little bit closer at that quotation in Amos, I think we have to ask why. Why Amos? Um, If you've spent time in that book recently, you'll Remember that Amos is largely a book that declares God's punishment on the nations, Israel and Judah, yes, um, but also in chapters 1 and 2 of Amos against the foreign nations that surrounded Israel. Um, The book opens with eight oracles against the nations, and they aren't pleasant. Um, They relate that God will bring fire and devastation and turmoil on the nations because of their great wickedness. Yep, despite that overall tone of judgment on the nations, Amos ends with this glimmer of hope for the future of the Gentiles. And that's what James picks up on uh, here in Acts. Um, It's as if to say that those people who had been separated from God and who had experienced his hand of judgment are now, according to the plan of God, which Jesus has ushered in, they're being brought into that kingdom. 
So James, his judgment aligns with Peter's, and he says that the word of God communicates that Gentiles would be saved. That leads us to our third portion, the gospel applied. And this is verses 19 through 35. And I will read that for us. James is still speaking. Therefore, it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, but that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols and from fornication and from what is strangled and from blood. For Moses from ancient generations has in every city those who preach him, since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. Judas called Barsabas and Silas, leading men among the brethren. And they sent them, they sent this letter by them, the apostles and the brethren who are elders to the brethren in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, who are from the Gentiles, greetings. Since we have heard that some of our number to whom we gave no instruction have disturbed you with their words, unsettling your souls, it seemed good to us, having become of one mind to select men to send to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we have sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will also report the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials, that you abstain from things sacrificed to idols and from blood and from things strangled and from fornication. If you keep yourselves free from such things, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent away, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. When they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Judas and Silas, also being prophets themselves, encouraged and strengthened the brethren with a lengthy message. After they had spent time there, they were sent away from the brethren in peace to those who had sent them out. But it seemed good to Silas to remain there. But Paul and Barnabas stayed in Antioch, teaching and preaching with many others, the word of the Lord. So since there is this unanimous agreement by the members of the Jerusalem council that circumcision and the keeping of the law are not necessary for salvation because the gospel is that of turning from sin to God by faith in Jesus Christ alone, the question that we're left with and the council has to answer is what about the keeping of the law? Are Gentiles just to completely disregard all aspects of God's law? Um, Are they free to continue living in the same form and fashion as they always had with no separation from their previous lifestyle? And then how can Jews and Gentile Christians partake in fellowship together if they maintain such vastly different practices? These are the types of questions that we're confronting the council. And the council determines to send Paul and Barnabas along with selected men from the Jerusalem church back to Antioch with a letter that puts forth their determination for the Gentile inclusion into the church. Um, But notice that the whole tone of these verses is one of not burdening the Gentile brethren. And you see that pastoral care in these men when they write in verse 24, we have heard that some of our number to whom we gave no instruction have disturbed you with their words, unsettling your souls. The elders cared for the well-being of the Gentile converts, and they determined to place no burden upon them other than four things identified in both verses 20 and 29. So those four things um, of which Gentiles are to abstain are things sacrificed to idols, blood, 
things strangled and fornication. Um, and if you thought to yourself, well, that's a really strange list of things. Um, you're not alone because that's what I thought as I was reading through it. And there's been a lot written about why these four specific things were chosen. Um, also, I think that these instructions can raise the question of the consistency of Scripture. Because while one of these things, fornication, uh, is certainly a continued imperative for believers today, there's later scriptures in the New Testament um, where Paul says in Colossians 2 and 1 Corinthians 8 and Romans 14 what essentially says, don't let anyone tell you what you can and cannot eat because none of that is important to your sanctification. So then what's happening here with these four restrictions and why does Paul later write that believers don't need to follow any dietary restrictions? So there's several concepts that I think will help us understand the instruction that James and the others give to the Gentiles. So first, we need to remember one of our basic principles um, for studying historical narrative texts, such as Acts, and that's that narrative is not necessarily normative, right? We have seen um, what we see in the book of Acts. When we're reading something, we don't jump to the conclusion that, oh, that's something that we need to do. Or, oh, that must be something that the church is always supposed to do. We need to be very careful in relating the narrative to our lives because something that is descriptive isn't necessarily prescriptive. Acts is depicting this transitional period in redemptive history that goes from anticipating the Messiah to then beholding the Messiah from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant and from the authority of the Mosaic Law to the authority of the Apostles. So we're not surprised when we read something that was effective and was necessary for a time um, in the church, but does not continue in the church today. And then second, I think we need to remember that the revelation of God's word was progressive and that there was a development in both the revelation and the application of that revelation. Um, and by this, I do not mean that God changes or that his principles change, or that theology changes, because theology is the study of God and his word, and he and his word do not change. Um, but the application may change depending on circumstances, right? So the early believers here in AD 49 did not have most of the New Testament because it had not been written. Uh, they had the Old Testament and the Epistle of James and perhaps Galatians, Therefore, it is appropriate for us to see the instruction given here compared to later instruction given by Paul as one of development. Um, here, the church leaders are navigating the situation in which they have two distinct groups. They have the Jews who are sensitive to obeying the Mosaic law um, and Gentiles who are coming out of pagan backgrounds. And they need to be able to enjoy fellowship with one another so that the church can function properly. Their solution is to choose four things that seem both to be linked to commands in the Mosaic law, primarily Leviticus 17 through 18, and things that were common in the pagan religious practices out of which many of these Gentiles would have come. So with what these four restrictions communicate is that no, Gentiles do not need to become Jews, right? However, they are not to remain pagans either. My favorite scholar just reminded me of this recently. Uh, when Pastor John was speaking of this on Sunday, when teaching through 2 Corinthians 6, he spoke of God's expectation of Israel to be separate and to be different from the other nations. 
and how then Paul was applying that principle to all Christians as he commands them to live lives that are distinct. In Acts 15, by selecting these four components that are directly linked to Leviticus and specifically about Gentiles living in Israel, the apostles are saying that just as Israel's abstinence from those items demonstrated their separation from the surrounding nations, so for the Gentiles, one way to demonstrate separation from the pagan way of life is to at least begin to apply abstinence in those four matters that were associated with pagan uh, culture. And there's, I think, two points of application that we can take from this. Uh, first is that we are still called to be separate from the ungodly ways that are around us and pursue a life that is distinctly Christian. The Gentiles, you'll note, were not burdened by being told to abstain from those four things. They rather rejoiced um, because they are the family of God, and this, it's their joy to live in a way that demonstrates that they are changed. Um, so too, it should be our joy to rejoice and to demonstrate in our really ordinary routines and decisions that we are also a changed people, and it's our love to follow Christ. And I think the second thing is that we must prioritize the word of God when navigating our decisions. The council looked to scripture to the Old Testament when seeking to provide a solution for how the Gentiles should interact with the community of Jewish Christians. Um, they knew the principles from God's word and how to apply those to their situation in a way that would bring unity to God's people. In applying wisdom to the situation, they looked to God's word to set the right course. And for us, this is a great example of what we are to do when we're confronted by questions. Um, we have no shortage of information. It's all around us. We're constantly being bombarded by information that we neither want nor need. Um, the distinguishing factor for us is going to be the source of that information, how we apply it to our lives. And I think we would do really well to imitate the principles that we've seen throughout the account, and that is that the word of God is our source of truth and that it is sufficient for walking in wisdom and living lives um, that faithfully follow Christ. So how does our story today end? That delegation from Jerusalem and the letter that they brought back to the Gentiles in the church of Antioch was met with rejoicing. The believers gladly welcomed the news that their salvation through faith in Christ was secure and that the church leaders cared so much for their full fellowship in the church that they would provide instructions for them in how to navigate their changed allegiance from paganism to Christianity. And then once again, we see a vivid example, example of the priority of the word and of fellowship in the body as we are told of a lengthy message being given by Judas and Silas in verse 32, and of Paul and Barnabas's continued ministry of the word in Antioch. But the return to Antioch is more than just what I would say a nice happy ending with everyone getting along, um, though it's there as well. But really, I think what it signals is another instance in the book of Acts of the victory of the gospel and the power of Christ in securing his church so that nothing would prevail against it. Um, and as it is true in this situation, it's still true for us today. Attacks against the gospel continue to come. We see that all the time, but we don't need to be unsettled by that or fear. Um, that's the point that Acts would have us learn as we observe the trials in the early church, but we see the victory of Christ and his work through the Spirit in the people of God.
we have the truth and we can cling to it and walk securely because we take hold of that promise of Jesus back in Matthew 16 that nothing will overcome his church, nor will any individual believer be removed from his hands. And this is, to me, the most comforting of truths, that no matter what fears or temptations or trials you're currently having, and I know that many of you have those, none of those can disrupt the Lord's grip on you. And this is our victory in Christ, and it's our hope for the future, and it's the reason that we can rejoice today. Let's pray together as we close. Father, we are so grateful that you provided the way for salvation, for us to become children and heirs of the kingdom. We ask that you plant these truths deep within our hearts and help us to treasure the blessings that we have in Christ. Help us not to waver in our gospel witness, but to rejoice that we are living in these times and these circumstances that you've ordained for us, for each one of us. Make us faithful followers of Jesus, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen.